encourage you, if I could, to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians. We, the pastoral staff, have been working through this New Testament epistle of Paul, and uh, we pick up in our continuing series in chapter 4 tonight and verses 21 <clears throat> through 31. Let me encourage you to attend to the Word of God as I read it, uh, verses 21 through 31 of Galatians chapter 4. Paul writing says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Fathers, we come before you standing on the threshold of an examination of this portion of your word. We would cry out to you corporately that you would be pleased to send your Holy Spirit in copious measures as the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of illumination, the spirit of insight, and the spirit of understanding that we may properly understand this passage of your word to the end, that we may feel the weight, the weight of its truth upon our own hearts. Indeed, that we might in turn be giving up, get given up to its molding influence upon our lives and upon our conduct, how we think. And moreover, O oh God, I would plead with you that you would be pleased not to leave your servant to the sordid prospect of creature confidence 
and the uncertain sound of a noisy brass or, or clanging cymbal. But, oh, Father, that you would be pleased to come and give clarity of thought to myself and enable me, Father, to speak your word and to preach in truth its meaning. So, Father, we ask you that you would come upon all of us so that we would not simply be engaged in a mental exercise that's simply tinged with certain spiritual expressions. But, O oh Lord, that we would indeed may have direct dealings with you in this, the ministry of your word. For this we plead, and for this we believe that the Lord Jesus died. And so to that end, we ask for his help, and in his name, amen. Now let me begin by noting up front, and uh, this is not a disclaimer, though it might ought to be. This passage, indeed these verses, have long been the subject of much discussion and controversy, even among Christian commentators, even among Reformed commentators. Now, I don't say that, well, I may need to apologize for what follows afterwards, but uh, I'm not saying that to apologize up front, but I am simply acknowledging that this is not the easiest passage in this epistle of the Apostle Paul. But imagine how the Apostle Paul is approaching these Galatian believers. If you saw people as Paul sees these people, especially people whom you love and whom you believe to be in mortal danger, surely you would not hesitate to utilize every possible means at your disposal to alert those people and to warn them against the danger that you sense is threatening their being. And this is precisely what Paul has been doing in his opening verses of this letter to the Galatians. He has been seeking to alert these Galatians, whom he calls his little children, repeatedly throughout the epistle, as others of us have noted. Not simply to, to alert them to the mortal danger, but to the eternal danger that they were being exposed through the means of these Judaizers that had come in among them. And so what Paul is doing here again, even in this passage that we're going to look at this evening, once again he is seeking to alert these Galatians to the awful danger in which they themselves had begun to indulge. So there is no dispassionate discourse on the part of the Apostle Paul here. This is someone who is writing to them out of personal and painful intimacy due to the tragedy of these Galatians. And in the grace of God throughout this entire epistle, he has been the instrument of God in bringing these people to faith in Jesus Christ. He had been the one under God who had planted these churches. And here we, he sees in them on the very edge of turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ and going back to the Mosaic economy. And that's why, for instance, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you're so 
quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And notice this, are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is really another gospel. But there are some who trouble you who want to distort, Paul says, the gospel of Christ. In other words, what you're turning to is not the saving good news of God. What you're turning to is rather bondage from which Christ has delivered you. Perhaps Paul expresses it even more succinctly and directly in chapter 5 and verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, he says, that is, if you want to submit to this yoke of bondage, if you agree that Christ is not enough, he says, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. He will profit you nothing. So here is Paul in these verses, yet again, pressing upon them the implications of placing themselves under the law. Tell me, he says in verse 21, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul is warning against the, the going back to the law. So in other words, this is exactly what I've sought to title the sermon with. The warning of the law with respect to the law. Or the warning of the law concerning the law. And Paul makes that clear in the opening verse of 21 in this passage. Now, of course, we've been seeing here in our studies that when Paul mentions the law here, he's speaking to men and women who are beginning to believe that in addition to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they must embrace all the commandments of Moses. That they must, in addition to Christ, embrace the law in order to be saved and to put, be put right with God. And in that sense, Paul is saying, you seek to be under the law. But Paul is writing to Christians who want to be under the law in a way or as the way by which sinners are reconciled to God. Tell me, he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not hear what the law is saying? Do you understand what you're asking for? That's what Paul's, that's what his thrust is in verse 21. And so he wants the Galatians to stop and think about what they're doing. And sometimes it's very difficult to, to convince Christians to stop and think. In fact, very often it's hard to get some Christians to stop and think. We're sort of like Poe Bear and I'm not, or Pooh Bear. I'm not talking about the modern day uh, songwriter. I'm talking about the comic Pooh Bear. And uh, Pooh Bear, he says, sometimes I sit and I thinks. He says, and sometimes I just sits. <laughs> and he doesn't think. Well, Paul's trying to get the Galatians to think here about their situation. And uh, what Paul does in these verses, I'll, and I want you to notice, is that he wants to see in the life of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar the very truth that he wants the Galatians to see. Namely, that to live under the law is to be like Ishmael in bondage to the law and ultimately 
uh, rejected by God. And so Paul is conscious of that reality as he seeks to press home to them of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael and pointing to their interrelationships that if you want to live under the law, then this is going to be the consequence. You'll end up like Ishmael in bondage to the law and rejected by God. While on the other hand, to live as a child of promise, to live as one whose hope is anchored solely in the promise of God and in the promised one of God. To live as a child of promise is to live like Isaac, trusting only in God's free grace. So then, uh, he says, those who rely on the works... And by the way, when he says this in chapter 3 and verse 10... He says, for all who re rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as, is it, as it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in or by all things written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, are you listening to the law? Then this is what the law requires. This is what the law says concerning the law with respect to the law. And there, in that verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul is essentially citing the last verse of Deuteronomy chapter 27, where you have the list of curses. In fact, that's the final curse in that passage. But if you read chapter 27, there are all these curses there of the law upon those who do not obey the law. And Paul says, if you don't live completely under the law, then you fall under the curse of the law. And so returning to Moses and giving in to the pressures of the Judaizers is to cut yourself off from the gospel and to leave yourself under the curse of the judgment of God. Now there are three things I think we can see in this passage, and this is the outline. And I'm not good at outlines. <laughs> But there is, first of all, the historical. And you see that in verses 21 through 23. Then secondly, we have the allegorical, which we see in verses 24 through 27. And then there is thirdly, the personal or the practical in verses 28 through 31. So the historical, then the allegorical, and the allegorical are the lessons Paul wants to bring out of the historical, and then the practical implication of that for these Galatians. So first of all, then, let's look at verses 21 through 23, the historical. Tell me, Paul says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. That's a key note in this verse. While the son of the free woman was born through promise, and that is another key note to, these verses, to this verse. Now the two women here, bore two sons to Abraham. That's quite clear. First of all, there is Hagar. Who was Hagar? Well, Hagar was a concubine, but Hagar was Abraham's slave. And she bore him a son, says Paul, according to the flesh. That is, in the ordinary way. And that would therefore automatically assume the status he would assume the status of his mother. If he was born to a slave, he himself would be a slave. 
And that was his status. Yes, he was a son. But he was also, by virtue of being the son of Hagar, a slave, even as she was a slave. And that's significant. And quite possibly, Paul sees here in the use of this phrase, according to the flesh, an allusion, a reference to the Jews themselves who prided themselves on their natural descendants from Abraham, having been descended from Abraham. And remember that very mindset itself surfaces, for example, some three times in the eighth chapter of John's gospel the Jews would respond to Abraham we or would respond to Jesus we are Abraham's descendants we're Abraham's seed and we have never been in bondage to anyone and Paul is saying well here's a descendant of Abraham who was according to the flesh but nonetheless he was still a slave because he was the son of a slave woman and then there was Sarah, who was Abraham's legitimate wife, and she bore him a son, as we're told. And how did she bear him? Through promise. She bore him through promise. We could almost translate it in a supernatural way. Why do you say that, David? I say it because Sarah was way beyond far beyond the age of childbearing when she conceived Isaac. And that is virtually what Paul says in verse 29. But as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, or born in the power of the Spirit, even so it is now. Isaac's birth was the result of the supernatural intervention of God in the life of Sarah. Isaac's birth was the direct result of God's supernatural act in giving Sarah conception in her old age. And so Isaac, the freeborn, was born spiritually by the power of the Spirit. Now the point that Paul is making here and its developing climax to which he comes in this passage. The point he is making is that Isaac is therefore not Ishmael. Isaac is the heir of all of God's promises. That's the point I think he's making. You see, even though Ishmael could trace his physical lineage and descent from Abraham, he was ultimately, as we shall see, cast out. He was cast out. Yes, outwardly, according to the flesh, he was a son. But inwardly, he was a rejected slave. For as we read in Romans 9, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so that's the historical scene that Paul presents for us here in verses 21 through 23. Two women, two sons, one woman was a slave whose birth, she gave birth to a slave, born, yes, according to the flesh, the other, the rightful wife of Abraham, Sarah, who gave birth to a son as the result of promise and gave birth to him in a supernatural way. She was far beyond the age of conception. But then in verses 24 through 27, we have 
what Paul calls the allegorical. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now the word interpreted is not really in the original Greek. The Greek word for exegesis is not there. But you can assume that's Paul's meaning. That's really what he intends. That's why that word has been inserted into the English Standard Version. Actually, what Paul says, this may be understood allegorically. The word understood is not there, but that's what Paul is essentially saying. Now, this is symbolic. That would be as literal. Saying, this is allegorical. That would be the literal uh, translation of the passage. But here he's, he's using this, and this is what he means, that this is how it can be interpreted. This is how it can be understood. For these women are two covenants. In other words, symbolically, they represent two covenants. That's Paul's point. In other words, he sees the Abraham-Hagar story as a picture of the truth that he wants the Galatians to see and to understand. These two women symbolize two different covenants. Now, Paul is not dealing fancifully here with Scripture. And Paul's use of Scripture in this way does not give us, in turn, license to look for hidden meanings in Scripture. Like many of the early church fathers did with Scripture. But Paul is actually picking up on and expanding something that had already been set forth. In the Old Testament scriptures. The passage I read is the call to worship tonight. Isaiah chapter 54 in verse 1. Which Paul actually cites in verse 27 of our passage here. Isaiah himself picks up on the very symbol that Paul himself uses. Rejoice, O barren one, you who do not bear. He's, re he's thinking of Sarah. He has Sarah in mind who was barren. And clearly that's so. This is a picture of the Messiah's people, the church. And he says, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband, says the Lord. Isaiah himself sees in the Hagor-Sarah story a picture of something that ultimately depicts the grandeur of God that he has prepared for his church. Hagar has a son, and that son mocks Sarah. She mocks Sarah, and her son, later on, Ishmael, mocks his brother Isaac. And Sarah is the barren woman. But Sarah, you'll notice, she's going to have the last laugh. Why? Because the promise lay with her, and the future lay with her and her child. And he says that these two women represent two covenants. Hagar represents one covenant from Mount Sinai and gives birth to children who are to be slaves. So Hagar represents or symbolizes those who are under the law. The covenant she represents is the Mount Sinai covenant, the covenant of works, the Mosaic covenant. But the Mosaic covenant, and this needs to be understood as well, not as the Mosaic Covenant was naturally given by God, but the covenant divorced or cut off 
from its gracious roots in which it was planted. Hagar represents the Mosaic Covenant, as it were, lifted out of its natural environment and made what it was never intended to be, a means by which we work our way to heaven or to God's good favor. And you need but think the way in which we find or locate, locate the covenant of Sinai itself. Think of the lengthy prologue that we have heard preached concerning the Ten Commandments, that long prologue, we might say, throughout chapter 19 of Exodus, where God comes to his people and he says, I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. God had redeemed them out of Egypt and they were a people whom God had come to in covenant mercy. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And there is the great context of grace. So grace is the soil in which the Sinaitic covenant had been originally planted by God. And when rightly understood, the covenant of law reaffirms sonship. But the Judaizers, this is what they had done. They had dislocated the law from its natural environment and made it what it was never intended to be. And so cut off from its roots, it gives birth to children who in turn are slaves. And that's what the Judaizers and the Jews in general had totally misunderstood about the scriptures. And that's why when you meet people who will say that the religion of the, of the Old Testament was a religion of works. And that religion of the New Testament is that of grace. When they understand the scriptures in that way or butcher them, I might, might say, they're speaking out of a misunderstanding of God's redemptive purposes throughout all of scripture. Grace is the dominating note of all of God's dealings with sinners from the very beginning. And Paul says regarding this covenant, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. He says that explicitly in the text. And he may well be saying in passing, do you notice where Sinai is? It's not located in the promised land. He reminds them it's in Arabia. It's outside. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. That is to say, all of this corresponds to a religion where legal, not filial, obedience reigned. And that was the dominating characteristic of Judaism. It was a religion that was dominated by legal, not filial, obedience. It was an obedience that was calculated by them to try to earn merit before God and to vindicate their covenant status before God rather than it's being the overflow of love and gratitude as a forgiven son or daughter in the presence of God. Isn't filial obedience the only obedience that God really seeks from us? Doesn't God desire that we obey him because we love him and out of love to him desire to please him? 
That's what God desires. But the Judaizers had dislocated the law from its natural environment. That is from the soil of grace in which it had been planted of God. There was no joy. There was no delight. There was no hope. And Paul sees Hagar as a figurative illustration of that reality. That's how I'm understanding the passage. And then there was Sarah. Now, Paul does not actually develop this with Sarah as he does with Hagar. He doesn't develop that allegory as such in verse 26. But the point that he is making, I think, is clear. Sarah, the legitimate wife, and Isaac, the promised son here, all who are with Isaac are children of promise. They represent the Jerusalem which is above, the Jerusalem which is free. And she is our mother, says Paul. So if we want to be part of the people who live freely before God and are therefore acceptable to God, then we need to be in continuity with Sarah and with Isaac. We need to be those who have embraced the promise, those who have put their trust alone like Abraham and like Isaac after him in the God of covenant salvation. He's maybe thinking, that's heavy stuff. Well, it, it is heavy. <laughs> this is a difficult passage. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow the line of Paul's argument here and understand it. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And he's speaking here, I think, about the church. The true church of Jesus Christ, which is demarcated, identified by its foundational faith and trust in the grace of God that has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem which is above, that is to say the true spiritual heavenly religion or faith. And that is really then the point of verse 27 where we have this citation of Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. Why? What do I have to sing about? Here's the reason. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has uh, than those of the one who has a husband, says the Lord. The blessing of God rests. He's saying, upon the line of promise. And what Paul is doing here, he is showing these Galatians and he is showing us in turn that true religion, the religion that is ordained and approved by God, that religion which is vital and living in its eye, it is identified not by natural or physical descent. No, as in the case of Ishmael but rather by spiritual descent in the case of Isaac. I think that's the argument that Paul is presenting in these verses. And that's very much the whole point of what Paul has been saying in chapter 3 regarding Abraham and what Paul says as well in Romans chapter 4. True religion identifies itself in spiritual descent. Abraham believed God and it was accounted or credited to him for righteousness. And perhaps that's the same point that 
that Paul is seeking to underscore in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. In other words, Paul is saying to the Galatians, like Isaac, you are children of promise. And that is revealed in their faith. The children of promise are those who have put their hope in the promise and in the promised one of God, who is Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in verse 28, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. In other words, he's telling them, you have what God promised to give. You don't need to go back to that which engenders bondage. You have all that God has to give. And then that leads thirdly, you'll notice, to the practical and the personal. The practical and the personal in verses 28 to 31. And Paul wants to impress this truth upon the Galatians. And he's using every device again at his disposal because the issue to him is so important and monumental for these Galatians. Perhaps at times you think, well, why is Paul making the same point essentially over and over again repeatedly? Dear people, the point is, it's important and it's very often missed. So often missed, even by people who have been in good gospel preaching churches all of their lives. Here are people who are about to walk off a cliff. And Paul is doing his best to pull them back from the precipice. And to warn them of the danger ahead of them. So Paul is saying in verse 28, What then has all of this to say to us? And very quickly, three things as I wrap this up. He's saying to them, first of all, True Christian believers who are born of the Spirit, and not those simply in covenant or, or physical lineage alone. He says, Now we brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Children of promise. These Galatians needed to wake up and to realize that simply being part of the covenant people of God in and of itself would not bring them salvation. It would not. Being within the orbit of God's gracious covenant in and of itself does not secure our salvation. Ishmael was within the orbit of that covenant. Indeed, he had the sign of the covenant in his flesh with circumcision. And this is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was also within the covenant, schooled, instructed, circumcised himself, yet unless a man is born again, unless he's born from above, he shall not see, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. And then the, the next point that Paul makes here, he wants to underscore for these Galatians that true believers must expect persecution. Look at it in the passage, verse 29. But just as at that time he who was according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now, Paul says. Paul is going back to Genesis and he's referring to the way that Ishmael treated Isaac. 
And what Paul is saying to them is that you should be expecting the opposition and the persecution that you're receiving presently from these Judaizers among you. That's how it has always been, Paul is saying. But just as Isaac's persecutor was his half-brother within the family, as it were, so it's always been. You should have been expecting it, and you should have been on your guard against these infiltrating Judaizers. You should expect to be under pressure and to be persecuted. And so it is here, because the persecution of the church is not always by the world, but sometimes from the professing church within. Today the church is persecuted most often and most seriously by professing nominal Christians within the church. And that's why Paul goes on to say, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's something I think that we need to look at closely. He's saying to these Galatians, you need to rid yourselves of these Judaizers. You need to excise them from among you. Because that's how God got rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham was unwilling, but God said, cast out the slave woman and her son. Genesis 21, 10. Put them away, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with my son, namely Isaac. And then we come to the third point of the application, and this is the one Paul makes really in verse 30. Look at it, and I'm going as fast as I can. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. How would the Galatians, put, try to put yourself in their shoes, how would the Galatians receive this? How would they receive it? What Paul is saying to them is really this. If you continue to march along with the Judaizers, if you continue in the present path in which you have been going and seek to add to what Christ has done to be put right with God, you will share in the inheritance of Hagar and Ishmael. You'll never enter into the saving blessings that belong to those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone. For what is the inheritance? The inheritance is God's justifying grace. It is really, and what is justifying grace? What is it at its very heart? It is God himself. It is God giving himself to his people. That is the heart of justifying grace. God giving himself. And that's why solo Christo must ever be the passionate pulse beat of the Christian church. You wonder why Paul wrote so passionately. Well, here were Galatians, whom he had seen under his ministry, come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, but he sees them being seduced away. And so he pulls out every weapon in his arsenal to prevent 
that tragedy. May we look at that and be reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. May God grant us the grace to sing and to share in the experience of the psalmist who sung, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Let's pray.